Hello and welcome back to the latest Moses and Methuselah podcast with me, Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen, speaking to you today from Central Europe while I am in the UK. And looking around, it's now several weeks since we had a conversation last, Peter, and an awful lot has happened since then, to put it mildly. So I think this is a good moment to kind of try and get a handle on where we are in, in the financial markets and indeed in the kind of geopolitical space at the moment. Quick summary then. Basically, the war in Ukraine continues. There's been some partial successes for the Ukrainians, uh, taking back some territory from the Russians. But in response to that, uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, announced a partial mobilization, which is obviously an attempt to demonstrate to the West that he is not yet giving up in his campaign in Ukraine. Meanwhile, we've had a series of interest rate rises from the Federal Reserve, from the, in the UK Bank of England and the European Central Bank, all of whom are putting up rates in an attempt to bring inflation under control. And in the meantime, the uh, financial markets have been, uh, well, I think it's not wrong to describe them as being fairly turbulent. Uh, equity markets have fallen, the dollar has strengthened, and bond yields have risen, not totally across the curve, but they have risen to uh, the highest level, certainly for the last 20 years or so. So, Peter, what does all that add up to? It's a fairly turbulent and indeed uh, slightly worrying background, I would suggest. Good morning, Jonathan. And it's very opportune to be back online at this time. And as you said, a lot has happened since we last chatted. Just to touch on the Ukrainian situation, it is extremely worrying what is going on because you're dealing with a fanatic who doesn't mind the fact that he is alone against the rest of the world. And so now he's putting hundreds of thousands of reservists onto the battlefield, which could be a sign of desperation, and he's threatened nuclear responses. So this is a very unusual and dangerous situation for the center of Europe. And both what's happening in Ukraine and what's happening in financial markets makes a Moses or a Methuselah reflect on whatever you've seen in the past 50 years, uh, there's always something new to be learned. And I think that we have been able to learn a lot, or certainly I have learned a lot this year, despite quite a long track record and experience in these markets. So now, of course, the big question is why is it that on the one hand, I think you can see that inflationary expectations, because after all, this is all about inflation and inflationary expectations, uh, could have been peaking, could be peaking. You see, for example, that commodity prices are falling precipitously. And yet, at the same time, bond yields and bond markets are reacting as if inflation is going to get a lot worse, and therefore yields and interest rates have got to be a lot higher. And so there's a debate in certain quarters about what is more important. Uh, is it the inflationary expectation or is it the fact that if you invest in fixed income today, then the difference between the inflation rates as we see them today and the nominal bond yield that you get in any bond market is so big that wherever you put your money, it's a losing proposition. And this is a very, if you like, a relatively unusual state of affairs. And I think that 
all those people who said that bond yields and interest rates had been held artificially low by central banks have turned out to be right. And all those people that thought that there would be a marginal institutional buyer to take up the slack after central banks have withdrawn have turned out to be wrong. And so where do we go from here? Obviously, markets don't go down forever. At a certain stage, they stop going down and then they go up. So may I just say these three points? We always talk about growth, liquidity and valuation. And I have to say that uh, growth is going to most probably turn negative. That's what the stock markets are predicting. Liquidity is appalling at the moment, and that's done on purpose by the central banks. As for valuation, that's a different discussion. How long is a piece of string? So things are looking pretty dismal right now. They certainly are. And of course, it is true, as you say, though, that uh, you know the one thing we do know about financial markets is that they do move quite sharply and uh, they can reverse course quite sharply. Uh, but at the moment, I think you're right. I mean, there's two issues. Obviously, there is the worry about the war, which is in turn uh, had an impact on energy prices. But it's interesting that energy prices, as you say, are now starting to come down quite sharply. But in terms of the markets themselves, it's clear that uh, for the time being, at least, the central banks are determined to see through their interest rate rises. And there, if you like, I saw a comment that uh, Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, is uh, channeling his inner Paul Volcker. In other words, deliberately using the same kind of language as uh, Paul Volcker used when he took on inflation in the 1980s and uh, became something of a folk hero to those who believe in uh, hard money, but at the expense of a significant uh, recession in the US uh, at the time. So yes, it's all quite gloomy on the surface, and I have to say is unfolding pretty much as uh, some of the more pessimistic people that I've been talking to over the last two or three years, it's working out pretty much as they predicted. That, uh, as you say, basically there was a massive policy error in the past compounded by the war in Ukraine. And I think we all have to live with the consequences of that. In one way, my greatest concern is not so much that this plays out as these things tend to play out, but that the risk of uh, policy errors by governments in particular is very high in these kind of circumstances, particularly in uh, countries which have political systems which are perhaps not functioning as well as they might be. So I am concerned about that. Obviously, I have a particular UK concern, given that we've just or haven't appointed a new prime minister. We've <laughs> inherited a new prime minister from a rather uh, arcane voting system in the Tory party, who looks set to unveil a dash for growth by cutting taxes massively across the scale, as well as subsidising uh, everybody's energy bill. Their mini-budget is a conscious attempt to go for growth, if you like, and may well run into a financial crisis. The pound has fallen very, very sharply, and guilt yields are rising very sharply. And that is exactly what happened in 1992. And it's also when we had the ERM crisis, and it's also what happened in the early 1970s when we had the barber boom. So it is a very concerning time. Obviously, my focus is on the UK, but your focus is more broad across the world. Well, let's just start with one question. How far do you think the Federal Reserve is going to go? And at what point will we see perhaps the dollar finally peaking and turning down? 
because that's such a massive factor in today's, uh, as you say, liquidity conditions, among other things. Jonathan, I was going to ask you, and maybe we can come back to that, to ask you to give me more of your opinions on what's happening in the UK. Because although she has put on the mantle of Thatcherism, if I remember rightly, what Mrs. Thatcher did was to sharply increase VAT at the same time as sharply reducing taxation rates. But obviously Liz Truss and her new chancellor haven't done that. So maybe we can come back in a little bit more detail to what's going on in the UK because that's very important. And the way the pound sterling behaved over the weekend and especially this morning in Asia is quite extraordinary because not only has it behaved like the pound sterling, like an emerging markets currency, but the speed at which it fell is quite mind-boggling that you can have purportedly a world currency like the pound dropping so sharply, which calls into question the, the status of the pound going forward. But we can come back to that. To try and answer your question, and yes, Jay Powell is trying to be like Paul Volcker, but at the same time, because they've given up, central banks, broadly speaking, have given up making forecasts for inflation and instead they're reacting rather than proacting because their proactions in the past have been wrong. So they don't want to continue proacting. So they're reacting now. And so the answer to your question, I think, will depend on how quickly inflation has peaked or how soon it will emerge that inflation has peaked and is going the other way. In my opinion, the level of inflation is not so much what counts as far as monetary policy is concerned. What counts is the direction of inflation. So if inflation has peaked and is starting to go down, for example, because supply-side constraints have eased, which they have, and, for example, because sharp rises in interest rates have started to affect consumer behavior and savers' behavior, then when inflation is seen to be peaking and turning the other direction, as predicted by commodities markets, that could be the point at which Jay Powell and Madame Lagarde and all the others, except for the Japanese, of course, who are not doing anything on that front, would then start to consider whether they've done enough, they've gone far enough. And that point can happen any time, in my opinion, in the next three to six months. And of course, when that happens, the last place you want to be is out of the stock market. Because the amount of shorts at the moment out there is phenomenal. The amount of cash in fund managers' portfolios is at a record high. And the amount of negative sentiment is really very, very high as well. How do you see that, Jonathan? Well, all those factors, as I, I think I alluded to before, are absolutely irrelevant. There will be a turning point. And of course, there will be an opportunity at that stage for a lot of people to make a lot of money. Whether it's enough to make up for all the money they may have lost already is another matter entirely. But uh, of course, that turning point will come and it will come probably as normal at the sort of darkest hour. And the question is, when is the darkest hour going to be? And we don't know that, unfortunately, for sure. And everything does look a little bit precipitous at the moment, as you say. Everything looks very kind of oversold, if I can use a technical term. You know, the line is dropping 
not quite perpendicularly, but it's getting close to that. So there may well be a, a short-term rally, I'm sure, at some point. The big question for me is, at what stage does it become interesting to look at the bond market again? And I think that's really you know, where bond yields peak, not just where the central bank rates peak, but uh, where bond yields peak will be very important. Because at that stage, there will be, I think, quite a lot of money to be made out of bonds either because we're going into a really bad recession and, and therefore they will eventually come down to quite low levels, or simply because the inflation threat has been, uh, if you like, neutralised a little bit. Of course, one of these things is all about optics. I mean, just again, to take the UK, the big energy support packages that uh, the UK government has announced and you know, similar to, but not identical to those across Europe, that will reduce inflation. That will reduce the reported figure of inflation by effectively taking higher gas prices out of the inflation figures. And that shouldn't fool anybody because you're just concealing the fact that the prices are not as high as they would otherwise be. They are, in fact, being supported by the government. So it comes to the same thing. But will that be enough to convince the markets that the inflation beast has been tamed? Well, I'm still not quite sure. If you take out energy costs, the underlying inflation is still way above target. So I don't think we're quite there yet, in any case, put it that way. I would have thought you're quite right. Jonathan, that we're not, we're not quite there yet. One thing that I've noticed in the last few days, which I found very interesting and not really widely commented upon, you know, Jonathan, how you and I have been talking about, first of all, the US bond market is the world's leading bond market. We know that. And therefore, you've got to look at the US bond market more closely than everywhere else. And I've noticed recently in conjunction with a conversation about how aggressive the Fed is going to be and about whether the next hike will be 75 basis points or a full 100 basis points, and then they hiked rates last week, what happened, I found very interesting, namely that the short bond yields spiked, piercing the 4% easily, like a knife through butter level, whereas the 10-year bond yield which also rose a lot in the last weeks, actually reversed. So you had short yields going up and the medium-term 10-year yields stopping to go up and even going down a couple of days in a row, which meant that the inversion of the yield curve is more pronounced, which in turn would indicate that inflation is maybe beginning to subdue. And if you look at the inflation protected the so-called TIPS yields, you'll find that in real terms, there is actually now a positive yield. And so if you keep your eyes glued on that part of the bond market, you could potentially find the key to the future and the answer to the question that you've been posing. Now, I'm not saying that the 10-year yield is not simply taking a breather and then is going to continue rising and in turn pierce the 4% level. I hope it doesn't, but it might. But I think that we must be nearing the time where you could start to make money again in bond markets. Now, for you, of course, that would mean investing in a foreign bond market. Your question surrounds the pound sterling, the gilts market, really. And there, I think it's much more problematic, not only because inflation rates are well into double figures, but also the forecasts from some corners, it's just forecasts, but nonetheless, 
could mean that yields have got to go a lot higher in order to cover inflation. And therefore, you're probably further away from the entry point in the gilt market compared with the entry point, for example, in the US dollar bond market. I don't know what you think about that. Yes, I would agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, the UK, as you know, is a notoriously higher inflation economy than most of our uh, leading competitors. You know, we have a current account deficit of around 8% of GDP. We've never managed to eliminate our reliance on foreign imports and so on. That helps to import inflation into the UK. We've now got relatively low level of foreign exchange reserves, which is uh, not great going into this kind of situation. And there is undoubtedly, uh, there's two ways you can interpret what's happening, I think, in the financial markets as far as the UK is concerned. Either it's a case of the markets having a run at the pound, in other words, having a go to see whether the rate can be sustained and whether the, you know, a bit like 1992, whether the, the government will have to change course or not because of the financial pressure. Or it actually is the first sign that something really bad is going to happen. So it's either a case, if you, if you think of sort of markets as, in a funny sort of way, the bond market is a kind of predator, if you like. I always predicted they would have a run at the pound, whatever happened, whether or not they thought this particular package of measures that the government's announced, which are either... You know, they're either genius or they're very foolhardy. I mean, I don't know how best to describe that. I mean, it's an extraordinary gamble to take with the public finances in the UK to adopt all these policies that the new trust government has uh, has taken on uh, and to do them all at the same time. I mean, you'd have to call it uh, what Sir Humphrey would call a very brave decision <laughs> to do this, really very brave decision, because, you know, it could be absolutely catastrophic for the UK. We could have another financial crisis like we've had in the past, and that would be very, very damaging. So far, I think it's too early to tell. I mean, it's only, what, a couple of weeks since uh, Liz Truss was appointed, became Prime Minister, and we've had the whole drama of the Queen's funeral as well in the meantime to distract things. Uh, But in that time, the initial market response, I think, has been entirely predictable and was predicted by many of the people I talked to. Uh, But whether it's actually going to work, in other words, whether it's actually going to lead to a full-on sterling crisis I think it's too early to say, Um, but it's definitely a concern. I mean, given the extraordinary things that they are doing, you know, it's the biggest fiscal expansion we've ever had in this country, uh, apart from the 1971 barber boom, which ended in spectacular failure and uh, ushered in a a really, really dark period for the UK, where we ended up going to the IMF with cap in hand to ask for money. So, yeah, it's very difficult not to be concerned about it, and if you're right about, I mean, you're obviously all right about thinking about the gilts, they will take longer to beat than we'll see in, in the US Treasury market and certainly in some other European markets as well. Though it has to be said, and this again might be of interest to hear what you think about this, it has to be said that, you know, against the euro, the pound has actually not fallen that far at all. I've just come back from a week in Greece and, uh, you know, it's been quite notable that the exchange rate against the euro has not fallen anything like as much because Europe has its own problems and, um, they're not necessarily that much less severe than those facing um, facing the UK. So I don't know what you think about what's happening in Germany and more recently in Italy. We've had the latest Italian election and uh, resulted in what looks like a victory for the, you know, the right-wing coalition in Italy, effectively a repudiation of most of the things that the Draghi government was trying to do. Uh, and that must be also, I think, a concern about what's going to happen to the Italian economy. So I welcome your take on that. That's a very new bit of news the new government this morning, there was a very low representation in the voting booth. 
because the Italians are fed up with elections and they think that, you know, the next election is going to happen within the next 12 to 24 months, so why do I bother going to vote? The press has uniformly condemned the new coalition, especially Giorgia Meloni, as being fascist. And, of course, that's not surprising because whenever you you have an interview with a journalist and you talk about old-fashioned human values like the family and so on, you're immediately condemned for being a fascist. So one shouldn't really read too much press at the moment. And as far as how this is going to go, I think the more positive aspect is that she doesn't rant and rave against the European Union or against Brussels, like some of her predecessors did. And one has to give her time. You touched on Germany. I mean, the German government is very weak, really very weak, and is now reaping the results of the last 10 years of governmental rule under Mrs. Merkel, who clung on to industrial policy rather than moving to the knowledge-based economy like everywhere else. And in so doing, she was, of course, sucking up to Vladimir Putin for years, and now you've got the results. So, again, we'll see. But it's, a, it's always dangerous for Europe when you have a weak German government. I know that some people will say that it's even more dangerous when you have a strong German government. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, of course, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, that's true. Fair enough. But... Um, the situation in Central Europe needs to be looked at very, very closely. I want to come back to two points. The first point really concerns the UK again. And what I think is relatively unusual is that you have on the one side monetary tightening by a central bank governor who is to a certain extent cornered by the press who gets very bad press and is also under attack from the newly, you call it appointed, I call it anointed prime minister uh, who are looking for scapegoats. Uh, so you have monetary tightening on the left and you have fiscal loosening on the right. And I can't remember when we last had a clash between fiscal policies and monetary policies. Maybe you, your memory is better than mine to see how that ended up in the end. So that's my first point. My second point, which maybe concerns more the US than the UK or, or Europe, but you've had a divergence between what I call Main Street and what I call Wall Street. So you've had the last, say, nine, 10 months in Main Street, which have been relatively okay. So you've still had growth and you've had earnings it was okay. Whereas in Wall Street, you've had a very bad, very sharp bear market. But going forward, if stock markets behave as they should behave and therefore as they will, then as soon as the recession becomes ingrained in the US economy, and as soon as it's visibly there, you can then have potentially a change of attitude from the Fed and they could go into the direction of a pivot. And at that point, the US stock market is going to resume its role of looking ahead across the valley. And while there is then the certainty of a recession, the certainty of higher interest rates will therefore be called into question and you could really then experience 
a big rally. So as the main street operators start having pain, the Wall Street operators can put their pain behind them and can start looking ahead. That's my scenario. But when it starts, that's the question I was going to ask you, when that is going to start. Okay, well, I'll take that one first, if I may. Of course, that is the uh, $64 trillion question. Uh, but I think we have yet to go through one more phase, haven't we, in, in the stock market at least, which is that we've still not yet seen earnings forecasts come down. I mean, analysts in America are still forecasting that, that earnings will go up this year, uh, but not by much. They're reducing their estimates all the time. It's a very typical phenomenon, I think, going into a bear market, or in the middle of a bear market, shall we say, where... Earnings are always the last thing to adjust. Earnings estimates, uh, and therefore the kind of PE ratios that people talk about, analysts talk about, they're always behind the curve when we're going into a bear market. And then historically, when you look back, because everything has been adjusted, everybody says, oh, well, it was obvious that actually that was uh, that the valuations were wrong. Um, and clearly they are wrong at the moment, unless you look purely at historic numbers. They clearly are wrong, and they're going to get worse. In other words, they're going to come down. That has to happen before I think we can start to think about the turning point. You know, the timing is obviously not identical. You know, they'll still be cutting earnings estimates after the turning point has actually arrived. That's for sure also. But, you know, when we talked last time, you were still saying that when you talked to some of the companies in your portfolio, they were saying, well, things actually aren't too bad. We're still doing okay because of the kind of companies that you uh, you invest in. But I wonder if that's still the case. I mean, I think the earnings have got to come down quite a long way, 20% maybe from where they are now before we actually get to where they should be. And... That does have an impact on when the turning point might come. I'm relying on the fact, as always, that uh, when I look at my charts and everything, I think I'll get a clue as to when the turning point happens. I'm hoping to, but I may well get it wrong. I don't think it's yet. I think it's probably, uh, we'll get a rally of some sort, obviously, before the end of the year. But I think the turning point won't be until sometime next year. Personally, that would be my my perspective on when, when the stock market actually finally turns. It will probably be sometime next year. I wouldn't dispute that. But I've always tried to avoid making predictions. I've tried to avoid the temptation of making predictions. I haven't always succeeded in avoiding it because it's a little bit of a mug's game. But you touched on something which I totally agree with. You need to see earnings downgrades, at which point forward PE ratios go up. And in the past, although you might think that you shouldn't invest when the PE ratios are suddenly higher, because of the valuation. Nonetheless, I'm sure you remember that that was often the moment when you should go back into the market, when you should buy cyclical stocks, because then, if you like, over a three-year view or something, the earnings will grow into the valuations. But again, I don't invest into cyclical businesses. And you asked me whether anything has changed in our portfolio with regard to earnings and expectations of earnings? And the answer is, broadly speaking, no. We are very close to the companies that we invest in. And we continue to see that not only have the earnings seasons gone very well, but also the future earnings expectations haven't suffered. What the companies are grappling with is twofold. Number one, whether and how and to what extent they will be inclined to exercise their pricing power, which they have. Now, a lot of companies claim to have pricing power, and a lot of them don't, in fact, have pricing power. In our case, it's not so much whether they do or they don't, because they do. 
The question is how they exercise that pricing power. And the second thing that I think is even more important is the extent to which, and again, how, these companies are adjusting their mentality towards a background of inflation. Because don't forget that anybody who's younger than, I don't know, you and I, hasn't really experienced inflation as entrepreneurs. And so they're scratching their head and trying to adjust their mentality towards thinking in real terms rather than in nominal terms. And the conversations that we are having with our companies, they underline that. And it's very interesting to see how that is going to pan out. But as far as earnings and earnings expectations are concerned, I wouldn't have expected that the best quality growth businesses in the world should be particularly negatively affected uh, given their operating leverage, their very high gross and net margins, their position in the market, and so on and so forth, and their adherence with what we call our 10 golden rules of quality growth investing. So I'm glad that you've given me the opportunity to make a few comments about that. And finally, coming back to Main Street versus Wall Street, I don't like to say this, but from my portfolio's point of view, an outright recession would probably be good because it would concentrate investors' minds into a corner where the earnings are not downgraded by recession expectations. And of course, that points to quality growth again. So it's quite subtle right now what's going on. Indeed. And I think a lot of it depends on what your starting point is. I mean, in your case, you're providing your investors with something which is, I think one can say with some confidence, over the long term will produce superior risk-adjusted returns. I think that's that's clear. I totally endorse that approach. The question really is for individual investors who perhaps don't have that time horizon or who else have a tendency, which I am one. I mean, I have actually took a view last year for the only the second time in 10 years, effectively, since the global financial crisis, basically to sell almost everything and go into hiding places. And you did make the point, well, where are the hiding places? And so the challenge for people like me is to say, okay, I'm an individual investor. I can do whatever is right for me. The challenge is when to get back into the market. Whereas for people who've taken the view that they want to be invested, you know, safely for the longer term, they can just sit it out in by investing in your fund or whatever and take the price volatility. But that's really not going to cost them over time. They just have to live with it. It may be a missed opportunity. The opportunity cost is high, but it's not actually an irrational thing to do at all. Um, and if I was a little bit younger, I would possibly take that view. And I think most you know, young investors should take that view. But not being that age and having some knowledge and wanting to make some decisions about what to do, the challenge for me and always is if you are that kind of investor is when to get back in. Having preserved a lot of capital by being out of the market this year, saved a lot of money, the question is I don't want to give it all back by failing to get back in again at the right moment. And so for me, the issue of when that right moment is, is critically important. Whereas for people I think who invest in your funds for the right reasons, at least it's less of an issue. They should just sit back and wait for, as you say, those factors that help your style of investing to reassert themselves over time. I think that makes an awful lot of sense to me. And if I was in that position, I would be certainly uh, considering that. I mean, the question of where to hide has been a very interesting one, because as has been pointed out many times, if you have a traditional kind of 60-40 portfolio with 60% in equities and 40% in bonds, you've got killed on both sides of the 
of the ledger, so to speak. Bonds and equities have both gone down at the same time and very sharply in historical terms for bonds in particular, they've gone down quite sharply, something which people I think have not been used to, uh, we're not expecting. And so, you know, I've been lucky. I put quite a lot of money into um, defensive investment trusts. I've got quite a lot of money in renewable energy, which has been a very good place to hide and infrastructure with inflation linked returns. Obviously by holding cash as well, you uh, risk losing in real terms because of inflation. But, um, you know, you're not suffering the effect of having both the loss of the value and uh, the decline in your investment. So it's a relatively comfortable place to be. Uh, but, you know, gold has not performed so far, except it's been fine in non-dollar terms. It's just held its value quite nicely in sterling terms, as the, the dollar term is down. Um, and obviously now, you know, the property market, which is where a lot of people in the UK and you know, have a lot of their wealth, that is obviously going to be weaker. So, yeah, the question of where to hide is always an interesting one. I don't know what you would say about that. I would say that this year there's been nowhere to hide. Because if you say, yes, there has been somewhere to hide, which is the US dollar. Well, as a non-dollar thinker, it's very dangerous to put all your money into a foreign currency just because it's going up. So that's a very risky proposition. In my opinion, there has effectively been nowhere to hide. But if you want, the good news about holding cash is that whilst it's being eroded by inflation, at least we don't have a very big problem in the banking system as a whole, like we had during the global financial crisis, where holding cash meant effectively lending money to a bank, which did things with your money that you didn't know they were doing. And it could have blown up in your face through a haircut or something at, at any moment. That at least we don't have today. And if you want, that's a bit of good news. But I want to try and potentially offer you a clue as to the timing of going back into the market. I commend what you have refrained from doing this year and how correctly you estimated the future at the beginning of this year and towards the end of last year. You were absolutely spot on, dead right. And I also think that it makes a lot of sense for you to invest in the areas that you know, like investment trusts. You are one of the leading experts in the UK investment trust sector, as we all know. So you're sticking to your knitting in that sense, and you do what you know best. And that's absolutely the right thing to do. To try and offer a clue as to the timing, I can't propose when the market will turn, but what I can definitely anticipate is that when it does turn, the beginning of that turning point will be brushed off by pessimists and perma bears as being no more than a technical adjustment of some kind. For example, short covering on a massive scale or any other number of potentially technical factors rather than fundamental factors. But what I put to you, Jonathan, is that in my opinion, every change of trend, whether it's bottoming out and going up or topping out and going down, actually starts technically. It starts through technical factors and it's brushed off by non-believers as being technical factors. And then, lo and behold, it morphs into something fundamental as it then regains a new momentum upwards or downwards. So I think if you if you notice in the next months or 
weeks or whatever it is that the market has bottomed and is going up, you should watch out for the doomsayers who say, no, no, don't be fooled. This is just a technical adjustment. So that's what I would offer you at this point. You're absolutely right about that. Well, certainly in my experience, that would be fully borne out by the really bad markets that I've lived through and you've lived through. There haven't been that many, only about one every 10 years, you get a really bad one. And uh, you're absolutely right. That is so true. You want to watch out for that. I mean, one of the interesting indicators I would look at will be, I do look at the charts, as you know, because they do reflect technical factors and they're not just the loudest mouth in the room sounding off. I mean, I do think you need to watch the dollar very carefully to see when that appears to be turning. Uh, and also the two-year Treasury yield. I mean, I noticed a very interesting comment by somebody who, whose opinion I respect, saying that effectively the Fed is doing what it has to do or feels it has to do, but effectively it is tracking the two-year bond yield. So when the two-year bond yield stops going up, that's when they will decide that they've done enough to actually uh, stabilise the inflation situation. I don't know if that's going to be borne out in reality, but that's one of the clues that I will also be looking at to see where that's going. Because, you know, regardless of what the longer term picture is and what the what the yield curve is telling us, I think in the very short term, that's that's what they're looking for. The Fed is looking for a signal that they've done enough. and it, But it's them looking for the signal rather than them trying to lead the market into making that decision, which is where they've been doing for the last 10 years. They've given up on that at the moment. They're not leading, they're following, basically. And I think that's one of the clues that I should be watching for sure, assuming that my country is still financially financially robust and in existence. Um, so it is a worrying time, but as always, you know, as the old musical song says, the sun will come up in the morning one day and uh, we will have opportunities. And there'll be very good opportunities. And I should just mention finally, perhaps in, in the investment trust space, which is the one where you say I, I have some knowledge, you know, you have the added advantage of the, of the discount movement. So... You know, share prices trade at a discount to, to reported net asset values. And we've seen some very sharp movements, which is what you always have in uh, in these kind of markets. The average discount is now over 10%. And that's the average across the whole market. Whereas two years ago, it was at around zero. So it's gone from zero to 10% average discount. And beyond that, in some of the you know higher risk areas like smaller companies, the discounts are way out into 20% now. And in private equity... Not one of my favorite asset classes, I should say. They are somewhere between 35 and 50%. But that is a discount to the reported net asset value. And of course, public equity trust net asset values lag behind because they report much later than public equity markets. So there are going to be some fantastic opportunities out there if you can vaguely get the timing right. And so we're all, I think, going into that particular kind of game now where we really want to focus on those little signals that will hopefully tell us that whatever you read in the newspapers, the tide is turning. Mr. Putin could obviously throw, I was going to say, throw a bomb into that uh, equation. That's probably not the right phrase to use. But uh, if he's really serious about escalating, that would be a, uh, well, it goes beyond a kind of normal market correction. I think we have to we have to acknowledge that. And of course, at a time like this, there's lots of rumours. I heard a rumour last night that the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, had been abducted. So you hear all sorts of things. And and finally, my last word, Jonathan, is that the timing of today's podcast was actually not a coincidence because I don't expect this week to be very good in the financial markets because we're coming to the end of a quarter, a quarter in which fund managers want to show their investors that they're not exposed to what's going on. So you can expect some more heavy selling this week as we head to the end of the quarter. But then we should look and see how the markets behave in the final quarter of the year 
And that, of course, uh, will give us lots of scope for further discussions, Jonathan. Indeed it will, Peter, and uh, I'm looking forward to that already. It's always so stimulating to talk to you about it and to uh, try and get one's thoughts in order at what is obviously a very uh, a difficult time and one that not many people have, well, haven't experienced for a long time anyway, something like this, since the global financial crisis for sure. Thank you very much, Jonathan. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.